Not know. I, I remember a story from when I was a registrar way back. Um, one of my colleagues on the road uh, said to a woman who was having an emergency section late at night, if I give you a general anaesthetic, I'll kill you, exact words, and then couldn't get the spinal in. <laughs> <laughs> and then had to call in a, 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 a great, great story. <laughs> a great a friend of ours called Neville Robinson, who oh, is from, actually from Otago yeah. originally, who then had to come and explain to the woman. <laughs> <laughs> that should be fine. It yeah. should be fine, yeah. Okay, welcome back everyone. This is episode two of um, the, the sit-down conversation with Matt and Nola about the obstetric um, special interest group meeting here over in Sydney. So Matt, we're going to chat about some of the highlights from day two. What, yeah, um, you know, day two was, um, look I'm a bit biased because I had a part in organising this meeting. I must give a big shout out to my um, co-convener Jane Brown from Westminster Sydney yes. who was um, yeah, she did a great job. Yeah, amazing at um, yeah, um, putting speakers together from, from the Sydney area. So we kicked off with a brilliant session didn't we um, on the second day looking at clinical incidents and how we manage them and, yes. um, and looking at medical legal perspectives should they proceed to um, down that track and um, Martin Culwick who's been involved in WebAirs which is the incident reporting system of Anscombe um, talks a little bit about the history of um, that process and um, him and uh, Alicia Dennis and Vic Ely uh, looked through most recent reported obstetric related uh, incidents and they presented and we'll be seeing this I think in, in more detail when it's published but they presented the sort of the themes that were coming out things like um, high regional blocks, um, drug errors, yep. pain at caesarean section um, am I missing things? What else no, were there? All the usual things. Yeah. So and, and just and, and again the theme that flowed through the meeting was the human factors element mm. and how these are so important in many of the incidents and complications that we experience. And the medical legal perspectives were were great, weren't they? And we had. That's um, great. Yeah. Very entertaining uh, talk from uh, yeah yeah and I think for, for me the take-home was and I think uh, Amanda Smith who's a um, anesthetist from Perth and also works for the, the medical defense organization um, highlighted that you can notify MDOs as much as you like it doesn't impact your insurance premium <laughs> so if you have a concern <laughs> let them know and I think I've always felt oh gosh if I let them know about this I'm like, is it going to impact me in some mm. way yeah. you get blacklisted or something oh my god yeah you know you're one of those, um, one of those. <laughs> yeah which is you know and, and the message was very clearly the opposite so if you have a concern even if you think it might feel a bit trivial we actually pay these people a lot of quite money. a lot of money, money don't we that's right yeah. and if you're paying that all your life without really um, utilizing the benefits of just the security of getting that down um, yes clear documentation <coughs> or, or all the usual stuff yeah. but um, getting getting them involved in an early yeah and, my, and the other thing she said were, that I was interested to hear was that most of their work with us is not to do with um, as you think uh, civil claims from you know, patients mm -hmm. it's actually to do with stuff like um, complaints to APRA and um, helping you manage that or things like um, complaints in the hospital system and things like that because they are they're on your side they're not 
you know, the, the hospital will, will often have their own set of laws and things, but they have different mm-hmm. priorities, you know, protecting the hospital and what you and so. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so, um, that I think she said it was like um, up to seventy point two thirds of their work was helping helping people write, use the right language when they yes. when they were addressing their complaint or. Um, and I think also providing the uh, the open disclosure. Yeah. Uh, the duty of candor, yeah. which um, yeah, and, and, right. and getting the language right Just before you at write that time, yeah. and mm. before um, you write a reply to a uh, to a complaint or or, yeah. or um, an email for requesting information, they can tell you or have a look over what you've written and tell you how to phrase it. So yeah, yeah look, I, I think that was really helpful, yeah. and I think it'll be really useful for us because we often. You know, we're obliged to, to do the open disclosure. We often might rush into that mm. um, in, in our haste to do it and to comply with our obligations. But perhaps if we get the language wrong, both from the documentation, but also what we say to the patients may impact what they do yes. thereon. And Is there any within in, in the UK, Neela, um, with respect to duty of candor, open disclosure? Mm. Do you have some? strong guidance to follow or is it within well, institutions that you do things slightly differently? Well duty of candor is I think pretty much the same you know we have to provide a, a verbal and a written account um, and the, what struck me was the advice and recommendations on this side of the world is very much the same as the advice and recommendations and just to reinforce that point um, I mean, I've had to call my insurance, uh, my medical indemnity on a couple of occasions and they have been nothing but helpful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I'm a reasonably experienced doctor, but the insights and wisdom that they gave me and also actually just helping me to feel better about it. You get a complaint from, you know, somewhere or some problem arises and it does actually make you feel terrible. Mm-hmm. And yes. they help yeah. you get some ob- objectivity mm-hmm. and see it in a you know, very sensible way. Um, so yeah, so we it's similar things, but uh, the other point I think that was uh, about document, document, document. I mean, when things go wrong, provide a narrative. You know, if you if you, you know, it's okay to stray outside of the guidance, mm, the yeah. national guidance, but just explain why you did that. Mm. You know, um, and I think you know as a, I'm lead in my department, and just you know I'm one of the often first people to have to respond to complaints or to see patients when there've been issues. And, and if I've got some narrative on the yeah. chart, it, it, you know, it's much easier to try and respond. So I think the document, document, document. The other uh, aspect of, I think, insurance companies can help. It follows on from Alan um, Cena's talk, mm-hmm. and yes. he, he presented a very nice paper where he he showed patients' understanding of the terms that we might use that we might think are straightforward. For example, mm-hmm. you know, I think a high proportion of patients perceived local anaesthetic is actually going to sleep mm. uh, and yeah. you know, we would all pr- presume that people yeah. know what lo- a local anaesthesia is but you know getting that terminology right either when you're meeting patients to seek consent for some kind of anaesthetic intervention or when you're responding to a complaint um, I think it's really important to, to get that, that terminology mm. right. Yeah, I completely agree here. Documentation so so important. And look, that d- that does take us on to the the next session. And one of the highlights for me was was Alan Sinner's oh, yes, uh, talk. So we moved on from a session really when things title when things go wrong to a session making it go well or something similar. I can't yeah. remember exactly what. Um, and Alan, um, who for those listeners who aren't aware of Alan's work, he's he's just a an amazing figure um, for promoting the art of communication. Um, 
and making things go much better than they can do with. And it's the prism negative. Is it the Australasian Society of Hypnosis or something as well? Um, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, he's got a big interest in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think his talk could be summed up with the title: "The Words That Hurt, Words That Help." Yeah. Um, and you think, what does that mean? But actually, his explanation of yeah. how we can use language in a variety of scenarios. Um, not just what we say, but how we say it. Um, you know, all those things yeah. that we use on a daily basis. Just a little scratch coming yeah. on. And I think it was particularly relevant in our specialty mm. because we're we're looking after patients going undergoing difficult major times, surgery uh, awake. major surgery awake, with with all the other sort of situational things around them, um, and a partner there as well. Yeah. So, getting the language right is really important. And um, look, I'm. You know, want to go out and buy his book? Actually, he did say there was another. It, yes. There's another book. edition coming yeah. out, so I'll wait until that Quick comes out. But book, I, yeah, quick plug for it. He did say he doesn't actually get any money for it. <laughs> I think it was called Communication and Something in Analysis. But it's, 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 I've got it actually. His surname is spelled C Y N A. So if you look up Ellen Sinner. Uh, on Amazon or something like that, you probably find this book. It was, it was brilliant having him here, and um, he'll be known to many of the listeners, um, anaesthetists from Adelaide. And he's, he's been speaking about this for some time, but I think you've really got to hear him, you know, live, haven't you, to yeah. really get the sense when you hear him sort of take yeah. you through. Uh, and and uh, one of the things I particularly enjoyed was physiological mumblings. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what was the physiological mumblings? He gave the example of, um, you know, whilst you're pre-oxygenating yes. a patient, as, you, as you're pre-oxygenating oxygenating the patient just have some background chatter mm. yes that's um, what is very interesting and, uh, and and patients can just sort of start getting quite chilled out before any drugs have even gone Good in drugs, um, yeah. I think um, you know we uh, obviously we want to come to these meetings we want to know what we should be doing clinically practically you know should we do a DPA or not do a DPA mm. what we're going to do but these you know these softer subjects are really useful as well for us mm. you know and I'm sure sometimes people think oh, that's not going to be useful but actually it, you know, for me, it was one of the yeah. standout talks. Likewise, I've, I've, yes. And I've heard mm. it before, and I loved hearing it yeah. again. Mm. And it, it, I heard it, it talk about oh, 13 or 14 years ago, and I've never, I stopped then saying that this, uh, this is going to hurt. Mm. And I, I, I think I copied his phrase. I was like, you're going to feel. I'm just putting the local anaesthetic in your back now. You're going to feel it spreading, and everything you touch is going to go numb. Mm. It's a really good trait. Um, um, once we've done that, then we'll do the next thing. And that's how what I say course and a good point that came up in the question time was that usually a well-intentioned midwife or um, anaesthetic assistant leans over and says this is the worst bit <laughs> it won't hurt for long <laughs> and so all your hypnotic um, therapy is yeah, right gone to always, but anyway yeah. that's what I have been doing for the last 30 years so thank you Alan if you're listening yeah no thank yeah. you Alan it's been <coughs> fantastic he's an anaesthetic hero mm. And um, I mean, it's kind of important for the with respect to the talk that you gave uh, Nuda which was really about Keeping people uh, keeping women comfortable through their cesarean sections, and you touched on mm. what we mean by failure of block, and you touched on how we test block, and yeah, you really touched on what to do, and also importantly, patients' perspectives. And mm. um, I don't know if you can highlight some of some of your talk for the listeners. So, um, a couple of things I think might be worth reading. Um, there's a woman called Susanna Stanford. Uh, she contacted the OAA a few years ago about her experience of pain during her caesarean section under spinal and how it left her with post-traumatic stress disorder. And she wrote that up for, it's published in IJOA, and it's an incredibly compelling read. 
um, and I, you know, I, I saw elements of my own practice. I hope I don't do it anymore. But um, you know, are you sure you're feeling pain? Is it not just mm -hmm. sensation? You know, us making judgments about the quality of the block. Um, we've we've got the spinal in. We've got CSF back. Surely it's working. You know, but just to recognise that you know even. Uh, the most straightforward block done by the most experienced anaesthetist can still get failure. But one of the other aspects for us is defining failure. You know, I think the example I used was, it's pretty straightforward to say that a spinal you put in with the standard doses of local anaesthetic and opioid, 15 minutes later the woman is still able to raise her legs and she's got no sensory level. That, yes. that to me is quite clearly failure. But you know, is it failure if um, everything has gone well and you're on your way out and then the surgeon decides to swab the paracolic gutters quite aggressively as they do from time to time? Yes. And then yes. the woman, and I, and my experience that some things like that often slightly destabilise a patient. All of a sudden, she's, she she maybe loses confidence and start, oh, I can feel it, and maybe it is pain. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But but is that failure in the same way? Um, so you know, when you're comparing all the studies around failure, and most of them suggest a a failure rate in the region of 5% for spinals. Um, you know, you've got to look at what they're defining as failure, and I think a consensus around what we define as failure. Yeah. But the, the reason I was asked to talk about the subject is that I was involved in some guidance that the OAA produced, uh, published last year. Um, the French have also produced a guideline, and reassuringly, we all talk about the same things. So getting consent right, um, how to test your block, recognising when it doesn't work, and follow up, those are the sort of main things. So. You know, consent, the way I try to approach it is just to be honest, you know, it's this the spinal, but the other thing is, you know, we haven't got therapeutic, we shouldn't take therapeutic uh, physician privilege. We probably ought to be telling our women about the option for general anaesthesia. Yes. Um, we need to be clear that it's, you know, it's pain, but it's not necessarily sensation free, managing expectations. You know, you're having abdominal surgery awake. Um, but providing reassurance that if it's not right, if they're experiencing pain, we will do everything we can to manage it, including general anaesthesia. And then the, the, the big thing for the guidance, and one where I was slightly nervously don't absolutely share the view of the guideline, is around testing. So the OEA guidance says test to uh, an aim to get a, a level to touch of T5, which in my experience, it is very hard to do for, for a number of reasons, which you can catch up in the recording. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think it's consistently achieved. So I actually base my practice on work of, of Alan Zina, his paper published in Anna in 2012. And so I aim for a, a, mm. a very comprehensive multimodal assessment. So I like to have cold to T4, some evidence of loss of touch, but good dense motor block, unable to straight leg raise, not messing around my bromage score, that's in the area guidance. And I really like evidence of a good sympathetic mm. block as well. So yeah. I you know, I think as the medical legal person said, um, Amanda Smith, you, you can deviate from guidance as long as you explain why and you've got a rationale. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make, is that we talked a lot about guidance, um, but if you've got the documentation to explain why on some occasions you might deviate from it, that is considered acceptable. Yeah. And the evidence uh, in some of these guidelines for, for, for some of the points that get put into a guideline are often, you know, lower mm. levels of evidence. So, and then the next iteration of the guideline comes out four years later. I'm thinking of the spine and sepsis and things like yeah, that. Absolutely. And they often come out four five years later and their guidance is completely different mm. um, on certain points. So we've got to remember that if you delve behind the guideline itself and look, look what it's built on, it's not always 
yeah, it's not always going to stay the same. But, mm. but setting a standard and having a guideline <coughs> at least gives you all a benchmark. Yeah, that's right. And then you can see what everyone's doing, you can see if it works, and then you can come back in five yeah. years' time and say, actually, this isn't so good. But I think, you know, yeah. having, I think there is lots of evidence now about having standardised practice and a standardised mm. approach. Yeah, um, it does help. We're all mm. really on the same page. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But I think the assessment of blog is really, uh, it's, uh, I was very pleased you talked about almost using a composite of yeah. um, outcomes for, for block. You know, it's not just about a sensory block if you're pursuing yeah, well surgery. There'll be a lot of GAs given, because I, I, I don't use light touch, but when I have, yeah. I've uh, found that that seems like a very strict definition of an adequate block. Yeah, well, something that's bugged me for many years, because I, I sort of toed and fro between Australia and the UK mm. for, for some time, as long ago, sort of. 2000. Well, I think I think the work on light touch being considered a uh, more definitive way of um, providing evidence that your block was going to be successful came out around 2000, 2001, and maybe even earlier, 95, yeah, maybe possibly. Yeah. And so in, in the hospitals I was working out in the UK, we were using light touch back then. Then I would come over to Australia and I would use, and everyone kind of laughed at me and thought, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and I'll go back to using cold. And I must admit, I thought much happier using coal because it was kind of much easier. You know, I'll go back to the UK and we start using light touch. And you made the point that, you know, if you're saying, you know, what is your level of light touch, it's it's uh, lower to where your cold level is, so T5, T6. And then the question is, well, where is T5, T6? And yeah. you had a nice yeah, representation from a study <laughs> that uh, when you ask a anaesthetist to put a, a pin on a donkey, um, people don't really know quite where T5 is. And all our patients are different shapes and sizes. And actually mm. T5 is going to vary quite a lot yeah. uh, among patients. Yes. But so I think I if you wrap it up with you know a sensory block to a level yeah. using a easily well a more easy modality to test for a good motor block, the evidence of synthetic mm -hmm. blocks you said, which is best measured by warm feet. Yeah, um, uh, warm feet. Uh, no, warm feet for sympathetic blocks, straight yes, leg yeah, raise. Straight leg raise for motor block. Um, maybe the heart rate coming down, yeah. the blood pressure coming down. Um, uh, and you just get a sense it is working well, mm -hmm. as opposed to just sticking with a sensory level. I think that would be a good. I, I mean, in fairness to the OA guidance, they do say to use motor block. Uh, they don't. Uh, they, I think they say sympathetic block is reassuring, but it's not compelling. Uh, I think it is. Uh, for me, it's one of the most important parts. Parts, but um, I know this is probably not a, a, a good thing to say. But I have to say, even with phenylephrine infusions, which confer remarkable cardiovascular stability, you don't get those big drops in blood pressure. I still find it quite reassuring to see mm. a little drop in Absolutely. blood pressure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I I a little bit of vomiting is oh, no. fairly, a fairly good sign. <laughs> yeah, of your a bit of vomiting, a bit of shaking. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. I must admit, for me, <laughs> o over the years, um, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with a higher block than a sort of um, a lower um, block. Yeah. <laughs> but because, but it, it doesn't stay high doesn't for stay high long for, for the vast majority of cases. And, and I think you just it's sometimes harder managing a lower block than it is a so higher block. Right. Do you yeah. agree? Especially if the and surgery takes a while. Yeah. Because, because um, that, that's often the issue, I think, is actually um, you know, complicated surgery. And, and uh, especially if there's a delay, like sometimes we put the block in and there's 30 minutes mm. before they start the severe and then it's a long case. If you've you know, if your block uh, wears off, then yeah, you, you have trouble. Yeah. And I think with a sort of de novo technique, you know, your block may go high, but it will just come down. But that just brings me, that's got a little flashback to a um, <laughs> some of the things which were raised from web as really, really important um, learning is that if you've done previous epidurals and then a spinal, mm, there was a strong right, yeah. association with not just a high block, but a high block causing 
significant um, yeah, yeah, maternal yeah, and neonatal yeah. harm. Uh, and we found yeah. the same in the UK. So we've just completed a big study and we need to crack on and get it written up and published, but um, looking at high neuroaxial blocks. And there was a bit of discussion mm. about what constitutes a high neuroaxial block. So for yeah. me, you know, high spinal, high whatever, um, it's when it causes respiratory or cardiovascular compromise, you know, yes. yeah. the sort of blocks where you get slightly tingly hands for a few minutes. So, you know, that's mm. so sensory. I, to me, that's within a sort yeah. of therapeutic margin. Yeah. But uh, in the UK, we've just done this big study and that the biggest proportion of high neuroaxial blocks causing respiratory or cardiovascular compromise occurred with spinals that were undertaken after an epidural mm. top-up wasn't quite right. So, yeah. you know, the difficulty is, well, what do you do in that situation? You've topped somebody up for an epidural section with an epidural. The epidural is not right. Um, you've got time to do another regional, but you know, how do you modify your dose? or mm. to, to, uh, yeah. and, and that's the, a big challenge for us. Um, then the, you know, the one case I had was exactly medical where I had a total spinal, even though I gave half the spinal, half the spinal dose because of the CSC. We just put half dose in, mm. and she just stopped breathing and went blue. And I guess... So um, I, I think about doing GAs now when, yeah. when I try and top up an epidural because yeah. GAs are not the end of the world, I think, now, to be honest. And maybe this is exactly <laughs> that, isn't it? It's, it's maybe our sort of, um, we feel compelled sometimes to pursue regional anaesthesia yeah, because yeah. of this feeling. I know you talked about it at the ASM, mm. but obstetric general anaesthetics we think are more likely to cause problems, but in the context of when you've had a failed mm. first neuraxial block, yeah. and then you're trying to establish another neuraxial block. So I think really important, you've, you've found it from your yeah. um, data in the UK, the Australian and New Zealand uh, where there's data is showing the same thing. We've all got some clinical experience of it happening as well. It is a thing. I think we can safely say it's a thing that you can get a, um, a, a problematic, very high block after a yep. failed epidural topic. Well, so yeah. just be very careful having and consider your options. Having slightly slated GA at the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. I do think it's we need to kind of demystify GA mm. and stop making it, you know, the the big bad wolf of um, obstetric anaesthetic practice. You know, we should all be able to provide a GA, you know, anaesthetist first and foremost, and providing a safe GA to an obstetric patient. In fact, not providing a GA is the wrong thing to do sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, I think we've got to, obviously, neuroaxial anesthesia is fantastic, better experience, etc. but general anesthesia still has an important role. Yeah, and I think you mentioned this too, that um, you know, a GA in a woman having an elective caesarean is it's not, it's not the same, I, I can't remember, it's not the same as a GA in the, at 2 a.m. in an unfasted patient hit with his time pressure and yeah, less experienced completely. staff, and uh, the patient's not fasted. I think they're almost completely different situations. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and you shouldn't necessarily talk someone out of a GA if they if they request it for an elective surgery. Absolutely not. No, I, I remember a story from when I was a registrar way back. Um, one of my colleagues on the road uh, said to a woman who was having an emergency section late at night, "If I give you a general anaesthetic, I'll kill you." Exact words, and then couldn't get the spinal in. <laughs> <laughs> and then had to call in a, 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 a great, great story. <laughs> a great a friend of ours called Neville Robinson, who oh, is from, actually from Otago <laughs> originally. Who then had to come and explain to the woman? <laughs> <laughs> that, that should be fine. It yeah. should be fine. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So your careful with your language. Communication. Yeah. Back to <laughs> Alan's <laughs> messages again. Yeah. Be careful what you say. Yeah, I don't think we'd endorse that kind of language, mm. would he? No. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a brilliant session. Um, so moving on, we talked about uh, hemorrhage and uh, Roger. You gave a talk and yep. you, you focused I'm on I'm practical I'm techniques. But yeah, you, so we've, we've um, you can maybe just highlight um, some yeah, things so you, you touched on. I might on. even try and. Um, do a podcast on that with someone uh, yeah. but basically I just I was given the brief to pick out a few things that, or tips or tricks uh, some perhaps um, 
concepts or things related to obstetric hemorrhage that weren't sort of mainstream. I think my anaesthetists uh, are pretty good at managing hemorrhage and they know the basics already. So I spent most of my talk waffling and telling an anecdote, which I practiced about 15 times before <laughs> <laughs> on the plane on the way over. Um, each time I'm making it more and more elaborate. <laughs> but um, the three things I discussed was um, manual aortic compression in sort of you know really dire situations with patients' uh, period of rest, um, and then uh, the philosophy around thinking about the things that can go wrong. Uh, in coagulation, including fibrinogen, and then finally <laughs> uh, the hemostasis traffic light, which I think deserves its own podcast, which is talking about um, using a you're looking at the patient's physiology and deciding whether you have basically whether you have time to do a blood test like a rotum or a viscoelastic test or a lab test, or whether you should whether the patient's an extremist and you should just start giving them empirical therapy with um, fibrinogen. Mm -hmm. uh, Coagulation uh, factors. Or, or, yeah. I thought it was a great talk, Roger, yeah, and I think it's sort <coughs> of um, because we we had we had um, delegates from you know tertiary, high end units. We had um, yeah, that's right. People was, from uh, you know the regions and yep. more remote areas. GP uh, anaesthetists with an interest in obstetrics. So um, and you, you cover sort of things that could be done in, in any institution without yep. viscoelastic testing, without yeah, that's right. So I work in the King Edward View. We have all the bells and whistles, but mm -hmm. I also work in a small peripheral hospital that has nothing mm -hmm. except a, a, a cupboard with some omegative and fibrinogen concentrate. You know, and it takes about an hour and a half to two hours to get a, a coag profile or a rotum mm -hmm. just to go in a taxi to um, to Sir Charles Gardner. So you don't have the option of you know, targeted therapy there either. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, obstetric hemorrhage is less common there. But as a, as a quick segue, because um, uh, we, we talked about the importance of fibrinogen and obstetric hemorrhage, and I think hopefully that's that's known to to all our listeners now that that is the the, the, the primary component you need to, to think about in obstetric hemorrhage. So having said that, most of the time it's normal. In, yeah. In obstetric but hemorrhage. if something were to go wrong, it's usually it's almost always that there's mm -hmm. the first thing to go wrong. Yep. We often have the discussion about using cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen concentrate in the UK. Nula, what's this? Is it being? Is it sort of split down the lines as to what's what's happening there? Well, there's variable supply of fibrinogen concentrate. So a lot of places will still rely on cryo. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a big discussion point, uh, point of care testing. So you, you're probably aware of um, OBS Cymru, I hope I'm pronouncing it, big Welsh project. Mm. The Welsh yes. have done some really mm. fantastic work looking at um, use of point of care testing and a very standardised approach. Uh, and in fact, uh, Sarah Bell, who's a fantastic colleague, uh, I don't work at direct, but colleague in a broader sense, she's just about to undertake a huge multi-centre uh, project looking at uh, randomising places to different strategies to see if the, uh, their practice in Wales um, is, can be reproduced outside of the setting. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, this, that's the reproducibility is the big thing, you know, the successes yes. they've seen yep. there, whether their approach using point of care testing can be replicated so I think watch this space yeah yeah I think it's my take on it is it's a bit like um, fibrogenic concentrate is great for use in units that don't have on-site blood banks mm. so if you're in a small hospital or you're in a retrieval service and um, cryoprecipitate is, is fairly easily accessible in, in places like you know, big teaching hospitals mm. and so and they, they both give fibrogenic the same with viscoelastic testing we in a big teaching hospital that sees a hemorrhage all the time and you've got lots of patients, it makes sense to get good at using um, a device that can tell you what to do. But if you only see, if you're in a smaller hospital and you only see obstetric hemorrhage once in a while, it doesn't really make sense. 
Mm. It's, it's, it's going to be less successful, I think, because mm. there's just less use of it and less familiarity. Mm. I don't know. No, just no, a practical point. The, um, the, the uh, approaches and strategies that OBS Cymru use, I, you know, if you put uh, OBS Cymru CYMRU into Google, it'll come up with their algorithms. Mm -hmm. And it's actually probably well worth a look and mm -hmm. read. And yeah. um, Sarah's published a lot in IGERA, so I'd, you know, lots of great articles to read if people mm -hmm. are interested in reading more about it. Yeah, great. That was a really good talk, Roger. Thank you. And then we uh, we touched on platelets uh, with uh, Renia Eslick, a uh, hematologist from Canberra. Um, and I thought it was a great talk because um, you know we, we covered the uh, the causes of low platelet counts. Um, but one of the things that really came through was the uh, we can in terms of neuraxial placement, we can be a little bit more conservative with non preeclamptic related thrombocytopenia, if that yes. makes sense. So yes. if your thrombocytopenia is related to preeclampsia, be cautious because it's a much more dynamic thing with the platelet count and possibly platelet function, <coughs> but with gestational thrombocytopenia, ITP, some of the guidance is now suggesting platelet count 50 and above if things are stable, is that? Uh, yes, it's always, it's been a, it's been a, it's a discussion that's gone on mm. forever, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, about what is a platelet count, but we won't go on forever today. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So I, I'm talking about. Nula's got to get back to the UK. This <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm talking about it this afternoon. The preeclampsia talk. So the so uh, the Americans have put out some guidance suggesting a threshold of 70 for yes. uh, pre uh, platelet count for an included preeclampsia. But I think you need to have a reasonably up to date platelet count. And the other thing I feel is that you need uh, to look at the trends. So you might have a woman who's had thrombocytopenia pregnancy who's bobbed along for the last three months with a platelet count between 70 and 80. I'm not going to worry about her. But you know that preeclamptic woman that was admitted a few days ago because the officer were getting a bit worried about her. She came in with a platelet count of 110 and then two days ago her platelet count had dropped down to 90 and today her yeah. preeclampsia is much worse. And, and I'd actually be much more concerned yeah. about her. So I think it's, yeah. it's your trends and thinking about your trajectory. But the other point I, I think is that we always conflate the risk between with, of epidural hematoma with epidurals versus spinals. You know, most of the normal American studies, they mostly don't separate out the risk mm. associated with spinal versus epidural. And of course, the bigger needle, I think, is a worse risk. So, you know, my, my cutoff for labor analgesia is around about 70 mm. you know I might push it a little bit um, yeah. but you know I think I would definitely push it for um, a bit lower with spinal but you know talking to the woman and saying look the it's probably an increased risk it's difficult to quantify yeah, yeah. think about what the, the, the individual circumstances do you think it, absolutely well, just and, uh, you know make yeah, a very individualized decision and also I think it's probably it's not one for the novice starting off on their obstetric yeah. career yeah. 26 spinals I think it's one for somebody who's done it a few times before yeah absolutely and that um, moves us on to the last session, um, which was on obstetric general anaesthesia, um, which was a, which was a great way to, to finish the meeting because uh, it's a hot topic, and I guess Neela started with the hottest bit of the topic, which is the role of TIVA in obstetric anaesthesia, and, and this is really quite a well, I, I wanted it discussed because, well, A, you've written an editorial on it, which was excellent, um, but B, because um, the world has just started using TIVA, and I was a reluctant TIVA enthusiast, but now I, um, I don't seem to ever give a inhalational <laughs> anaesthetic unless I'm giving a obstetric general anaesthetic, so, so I'm finding myself in this strange yeah. position now of doing something almost unfamiliar. Um, and I think a lot of us have become better with TIVA, better with the mm. use of... Um, 
um, EEG monitoring yeah. and bed with waking up patients. My patients either used to wake up just a little too quickly or not at all. They uh, <laughs> <laughs> now have sort of seem to be getting that right. So yeah, a really important topic to uh, discuss in the context of obstetric general anesthesia. Nula, can you highlight some of the, I guess, the, the pros and cons of TIVA? Well, I think the pros are, you know, the recovery profile after TIVA. And, I mean, we want our women not to be sick. You have to have a general anesthetic. We want them to be, get back to normal as quickly as possible, as for any surgery. And I think, you know, the, we have now compelling evidence across a range of surgical disciplines that TIVA offers a better recovery profile. In OBS, I think there is evidence that you're going to be less like less effect on uterine tone. It does affect uterine tone, but to mm -hmm. a much lesser degree than volatile agents. Um, and I think people talk about the environmental impact, but remember we only do 10% of GAs, and yeah, quite not sure about that. But I, I think you know from one of the biggest things for me is, as Matt pointed out, you know my practice has changed in the same way. I'm mostly TIVA now. I don't often mm -hmm. give a volatile anaesthetic and. You know, in the UK, we've seen a huge increase uh, in the amount of TIVA anaesthetics. Five years ago, if I if I said to a, a trainee on a list, should we do TIVA today? They, you know, it's like bunny and headlights. Look, oh, do we have to? But you know, now they look quite disappointed if we're not doing TIVA, and you know, it's become much more a, a normal part mm. of practice. And that is, it, you know, if we become much less experienced with volatile anaesthetics, and we find ourselves only doing volatile in the GA the GA sections. Is that going to cause a problem in the same way? Yeah. But of course, the, the big issue is that we mostly do GAs in an emergency, and uh, you know people say they can get the pumps ready quickly. There's um, a guy I think from uh, TT Periopeco is on Twitter um, yeah. from Australia um, who says he can get the pumps ready in two minutes. Um, brilliant, fantastic. But I do think that mm. is the, the, the issue around getting the pumps ready. Uh, the cognitive load of yeah. working at you know, and I said I suppose fundamentally we haven't the models in TIVA haven't really been uh, right, not yeah. haven't mm. really haven't been developed for, with the pregnant woman in mind so a few questions to answer but certainly something to mm. consider um, for the future mm. yeah and actually for, for the listeners who are listening um, we did actually do a podcast just on this topic and I think we used your editorial um, as the sort of discussion points of it with Perita and um, mm. uh, and we had a, a senior registrar with us from the UK uh, just recently, he, he, right at the beginning of the term, he, he came up to me and he asked me permission and said, can I please, <laughs> will, will, will I be allowed to use TIVA if there is a, um, a GAC there? Yeah. And I said, yeah, fine, yeah, you, you, you've obviously been experienced at TIVA. And I guess one of the big <coughs> concerns is the um, the risk of awareness, interruption of awareness, which has been yes. a thing with obstetric mm. general anaesthesia ever since obstetric general anaesthesia existed. And um, and disappointingly, it remains a thing. And, and mm. you know, you've yep. been involved in a dreamy study that uh, shows you know risk is still there. Mm. So um, I guess it could either stay the same, increase or decrease as we sort of yeah. transition more yeah. towards T. But I think the important thing is to acknowledge the potential difficulties and how you can mitigate some of those risks yeah. um, because you know, we've all seen potential awareness related risk with TIVA haven't we for yeah. obvious reasons. But then but likewise you also presented some counter arguments that a lot of um, well some um, uh, awareness in uh, obstetric anesthesia in the past was um, things like keprazole and cetaphylapentone mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, and also mind the gap so if you're having airway difficulties the propofol you've given starts to wear off if you if you're struggling and you're giving down for sort of five or six minutes and you haven't got the tube in and haven't turned on any volatile and that um, mm -hmm. having a TIVA pump running potentially would avoid 
you know, it's probably less likely to get because then it's a, if that was the cause of mm. you know, it's, it's a sort of mixed bag, isn't it? Mm, it is, yeah. In the NAP5 study, uh, Awareness <coughs> in Tiba, the issues, a lot of it was human factors, you know, people, uh, the pumps, cannulas, tissueing, mm. you know, pumps becoming yes. disconnected. And we've had um, guidance that's been produced in the UK and to standardise practice, just come back to that point about standardising, and just the fact that we're all using it a bit more. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, we're just doing it for the odd case, somebody who might be vulnerable to That's MH right, or someone you're really worried yeah. about, PUNB. You know, it, that just that we're all doing it much mm -hmm. more frequently and just taking those steps to really you know, uh, reduce the risk of awareness and keep it as safe as possible. Yeah, great cool. topic to discuss. And, and just with human factors, we, we, we finished on human factors in obstetric general anaesthesia and it, and it really was a kind of theme that pervaded a lot of the discussions over the two mm. days and that was a great talk from Cara uh, Allen yeah, really um, and we also heard from Nick Crimes about um, how the glottis can look very much like the uh, <laughs> yes. oh, yes. <laughs> like the larynx um, and also glottic impersonation and and really yeah. thinking about how we uh, we think about excluding the risk of well, excluding esophageal uh, intubation. Um, great paper that many of you will have seen published in Anesthesia and I would recommend you all take a look at that because we yeah. can all, all fall for it. Mm. Yeah. I had an esophageal intubation with a trainee only about three or four months ago and um, yeah mm. it's, it does happen. She said to me actually surprisingly the first one she's ever she's ever been involved with. It was wow. Wow. We're using she, a video she clearly so hasn't worked with you uh, often uh, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> that was with a VL was it Roger? It was with a um, Channeled video oh so we were putting um, an orogastric tube in first. Okay. So I like to use the channel for that, and then we really implement an ET tube. And so that we should probably finish on that uh, note. So we've been talking for a long time, and uh, thank you, Nuala, for donating your, <coughs> your time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just choking on my own saliva. Speaking, <coughs> speaking of the glosses. Yeah, that's right. Rogers is refluxing. Well. Um, <laughs> I'll take yeah. One well, new yeah. I'll <laughs> take over from Roger and say thank you so much for your your valuable time. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you here. And I know you're. You've got two more talks at the yep. ASM, and then you're jetting back to London, and then up to Edinburgh, yep. where the Obstetric Anesthetist uh, Association annual meeting will take place. Um, just before we finish, a minute or two, what, what are you expecting in that meeting? Because there, there is an opportunity to um, register. There is a, it's an probably a bit late for anyone from this side in of the world, Australia, using for anyone to join us. But um, yeah, we're, we're expecting a great meeting. It is going to be recorded and it is going to be available afterwards if anyone was interested. We we try to cut. It's our scientific meeting. We have um, our, all the abstracts being presented. Um, we've got a maternal medicine session. We're going to be talking about some of the organisational aspects of obstetric anaesthetic care in the UK. Um, may not be so directly relevant, but certainly food for thought for this side of the world. Something in the UK at the moment is uh, the development of non-physician anesthesiologists, physician uh, mm -hmm. anesthesia associates. Yep. And we've got a, a talk from William Harrop Griffiths who's going to be talking about whether they could uh, work on the labour ward, which is, you know, labour ward is incredibly safe and until it's not, so we've got yep. a lot of anxiety. So, um, yeah, no, look, it may, as I said, it may be too late for you to register for that meeting, but we do have a three-day course in November, our state-of-the-art mm. meeting. Um, more than 50% of people have come from around the world. So it's a really international meeting where we share uh, ideas and learning. So yeah, I'd always I'd love to see colleagues 
um, from Australian New Zealanders to come join us at that meeting and to get some Australian New Zealand speakers. Yeah, that was a great meeting. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things you, you highlighted during your time here, Nula, is the, the challenges and the choices we have are shared, aren't they? They're, they're similar, and I, and I think having you here has sort of highlighted that we're, we're all in this together and we've all got similar problems. And um, yeah, hopefully we can develop greater collaboration between this side of the world and, and your yeah, side of the world in the longer I, term. Yeah, that's something I'm just about to take over the role of OAA president, and we, you know, we're looking to develop um, a much more standardised approach to aspects of care where there isn't much evidence, um, but we have a, we could do with a bit of stand, standardisation, and it would be great to involve colleagues uh, from an, in an international perspective just to give it greater resonance because I, you know, despite the fact that I work in grey, slightly rainy England and you work in lovely Australia and New Zealand, uh, we do have much more in common than I think you know we would at first assume. Anyway, look, it's been a really fantastic experience being here and sharing experiences and learning with you all. Um, so thanks very much for organising a great meeting, you and Jane, everyone, and, um, and having me here. It's been fantastic. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so Write a review, this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandbiopretcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to. See you again next time. The Opsandbiopretcare Crick Care Podcast would like to acknowledge the Wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.